0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 137, Into the Abyss, Part 1. I hope you can tell by the title where things are going this week. By the end of 1931, the political, economic, and social situation of Germany had grown critical. The Great Depression had created an over 25% unemployment rate, and the people had given up on Chancellor Bruning to lead them out of the mess. While the KPD on the left was steadily gaining support... That uptick paled in comparison to the droves of Germans flocking to the Nazi banner. Hitler and his underlings made far vaguer appeals towards national unity, the removal of foreign influence, and a social reckoning that would somehow please everyone without upending national life. This played very well to the middle and upper classes, the farmers and just enough of the urban proletariat for the Nazis to be respectably represented among the last group while becoming the favorites of the others. Comparatively, the KBD's promise of class war appealed greatly to those most desperate, but as communists always do, they held little appeal to those who would lose out in a a class war, or thought they had something to lose out on. And with the SPD quietly taking a position of non-resistance to Brüning instead of actively fighting him, the greater left of the nation was a step removed from actually being able to influence events. Hitler, though, was right in the thick of things. Brüning at first tried to tempt Hitler into government in October 1931, and as the seasons turned to winter, he kept up the hope that he could co-opt the Nazis. This was an about-face on his part, as he had previously sneered at the low-class NSDAP. But by this time, he had little choice. His own economic decisions had wrecked the economy and driven more people into the arms of the Nazis. September 1930 had been a surprise, but it was now expected that in any future election, the NSDAP would advance its share of the vote still more. Getting the Nazis on board might also help save his position vis-a-vis President Hindenburg as well. Both Hindenburg and General von Schleicher, by the start of 1932, were starting to look past their hand-picked chancellor, Bruning's credibility was shot, and his quiet neutrality with the SPD was not at all to their liking. They wanted a chancellor that would hound the Marxists. They were also leaning on co-opting the Nazis into the government, and Oskar Hindenburg, the president's son, had helpfully befriended Goering to that end. Oscar was part of his dad's inner circle, and so word of the behind-the-scenes maneuverings made their way back to Hitler. Schleicher especially was under pressure from within the army to stabilize the political situation. The army commanders wanted to avoid a civil war at all costs, and they greatly feared the direction the nation was headed in if the Nazis were barred from power entirely. In reality, the KPD and SPD were hopelessly disunited and ill-equipped to start a civil war, and Hitler was dead set on taking power legally, but the generals didn't know that. Hitler's protests that he wanted to become a dictator via constitutional means was tested before the turn of the year, though. In November 1931, an internal Nazi document leaked to the press and created a momentary firestorm. It was referred to as the Boxheim document, and was a draft paper outlining that there was a real fear that the KPD would launch a coup in the state of Hesse, and that the Nazis should launch one of their own to preempt the communists. The paper included details of the martial law conditions that would follow, including promises of setting up show trials and mass executions. Property would be seized, the disbursement of food controlled. Really wild stuff, and it came out when tensions were on the rise. Naturally, every single opponent of the Nazis dogpiled them in the press. Hitler, for his part, disavowed knowledge of the document and insisted that it was only a half dozen local party leaders that had composed it party leaders who he assured everyone would soon be removed. It was the obvious thing to do, but it did ding his image as the all-powerful Fuhrer of National Socialism to have cronies planning such things behind his back. Goering privately assured Hindenburg himself that the incident was an isolated one, while Brüning accepted Hitler's explanations. He still wanted Hitler's support and his pledge to help keep Hindenburg in the presidency permanently, after all. Hitler launched a media offensive to draw attention away from the incident. Initially, it was clear that the German media would just ignore what he said, as it turned out the majority of journalists in the country hated him and didn't want any part in whitewashing his role in the incident. Hofstangl, the Nazi foreign press secretary, offered the clever idea of only inviting foreign press at first. They wouldn't share the same scruples as German reporters. Once the foreign newspapers started publishing stories, the German ones would be forced to swallow their pride and play catch-up. And the plan worked like a charm. All through December, Hitler played host to foreign reporters who reliably transmitted his message that the Boxheim affair was an isolated mistake he had nothing to do with, and also the promise to audiences around the globe that his movement was the most sure-fire defense against communism, which played very well with the Americans in particular. The German press was finally induced to come around and also publish Hitler's side of the story. While Hitler emerged unscathed, his followers were temporarily corralled, as Bruning did issue a ban for the next few months on political meetings and outdoor demonstrations, including ones with uh, uniformed marches like what the brown shirts were doing. It wasn't a very effective ban, as the brown shirts contemptuously doned plain white shirts and continued prowling the streets, arguing with authorities that they weren't up to anything political. They were out of uniform, obviously. And once 1932 got properly underway, the big story was the upcoming presidential election. Hindenburg was 84 and he was tired. His natural inclination was to retire and go back to his estates in East Prussia, but his own sense of duty, which is to say his fear of the nation falling into the hands of someone he disapproved of, stopped him from doing so. His surrounding entourage also very much wanted him to remain as well. If he stepped aside, Hitler was the lock to replace him. Men like Schleicher could not allow that, as their own positions depended on Hindenburg remaining the figurehead. Brüning still held out the hope that Hitler would prove to be an ally, and deployed the combined defense and interior minister, Wilhelm Groner, to talk him into a deal. Hitler went into the meeting expecting to be offered the chancellorship, And while he claimed Groner made an implication to that effect, there was no formal offer and the conversation broke down. Again, Hitler would only commit to the full powers of Chancellor with his choice of cabinet, and Groner was unwilling to offer that. Hitler was left out in the cold once more, unable to make the decisive breakthrough he needed. In February, he made the choice to throw himself into direct opposition to Hindenburg. The president had committed to standing again for office after receiving a three million signature petition, many of whom came from the Kaifhauser League, a right-wing group of veterans who asked him to stay on. He quickly received the open support of the SPD, in stark contrast to 1925 when they were his most bitter opponents. They were so desperate to block Hitler that they got behind the devil they knew, or thought they knew. The public support of the Social Democrats spurned Hitler into action. Goebbels especially had been frustrated for months by his Fuhrer's refusal to announce his own candidacy for president, but on February 22nd, Hitler threw his hat into the ring. The announcement came before 20,000 brown shirts who went berserk at the news. There was one little problem, though. Hitler still wasn't a German citizen. Except, wait, that wasn't a problem at all. The Nazis had actual clout in the state government of tiny Brunswick, and he was made a government consular there. It was a do-nothing role, but gave him automatic citizenship. At 42 years old, Hitler was finally a German. If you're worried that I'm going to spend a lot of time on the presidential campaign trail, don't. Hitler began his campaigning on February 27th. The election was on March 15th. I can only dream of two-week election seasons. There would undoubtedly be a runoff, though, as besides Hindenburg and Hitler, there was also Theodor Dusterberg, leader of the Stahlhelm and backed by Hugenberg and the DNVP on account of Hitler jumping into the race without consulting him first. The other main figure was Ernst Thalmann, the leader of the KPD, who could count on a solid base of left support. As it would turn out, the story of the election was almost all Hitler, despite, according to every poll, he was sure to lose. The Nazis pulled out all the stops once again, just like in September 1930, and this time they had even more resources to play with. Hitler was on the road constantly, the crowds were bigger, streets were covered even more in Nazi propaganda. There was also a whisper campaign against Hindenburg's kids. The field marshal himself was spared direct attacks, with Hitler holding the basic line that he had done the nation a great lifetime of service, though his time had passed but Oscar was rumored to have both converted to Catholicism and joined the SPD. His two adult daughters were reportedly leaders in the Socialist Students League. Hindenburg's campaign team, effectively running an operation with an MIA candidate, spent more of its time denying rumors than actually talking about the election. Hindenburg made exactly one speech, which was over the radio, and part of it was denying all the rumors. The usually uninterested old man summoned up some fire, denouncing his attackers, and over the air you could hear him pounding his desk. He invoked, as usual, his war service, and basically said he would let his lifetime record speak for itself. Which, to be fair, was effective. His lifetime of being an old grump was why the German people loved him so much. It was the only notable public pitch for the president. Bruning was the only major figure who actually campaigned for Hindenburg and... Well, he wasn't exactly the most popular guy, now was he? The first round of voting on March 15th came agonizingly close to delivering Hindenburg the outright victory he craved. The field marshal took 49.6% of the vote, just 170,000 shy of the outright majority needed to avoid a runoff. Hitler went home with a disappointing 30%. Still, a second round of voting was held. This time, Hitler took to the skies, which was a new way for politicians to travel on campaign and allowed him to cram in 45 stops in less than a week. Goebbels dubbed the campaign Hitler over Germany, and images of the modern Fuhrer taken to the skies were used for further propaganda effect. There followed an Easter truce where public campaigning ceased, a rather quaint tradition that I would love to have in my own country, On April 10th, the second round of voting was held, and while Hitler didn't win, he certainly saved face. Hindenburg scored 53% of the vote, but with Dusterberg knocked out, Hitler increased his share to 37, with Thalmann netting the remainder. Now Hitler could say with a straight face that more people had voted for him than ever before. The aftermath of the election would signal a new round of politicking behind the scenes of the establishment right. Hindenburg was not terribly happy and was especially cross with Bruning as his chancellor had failed to rally the non-Nazi far-right to their side, which shows how out of touch Hindenburg was as everybody on the far-right, not just the NSDAP, hated Bruning. Bruning did offer his resignation to Hindenburg immediately after the election, and while the president didn't accept it, stated that he might very soon circle back to the idea. The Chancellor himself threw more fuel on the fire days after the election by pressing Hindenburg to ban the SA and SS. He had not wanted to do it during the election on account of, you know, wanting to avoid uh, appearing to influence the results, but the activities of the brownshirts in the streets had alarmed local authorities to the point that they feared a push if Hitler lost. Hindenburg at first resisted, but both Bruning and Groner threatened to resign if the ban wasn't made. Hindenburg relented, and the Nazi foot soldiers were off the streets. This turned out to be a bad miscalculation by the Chancellor, as it turned General Schleicher against both him and Groner, the latter of whom had been Schleicher's mentor and patron since the start of the 20s. Schleicher wanted to use the SA to crush the SPD and KPD, and then fold them into the army once a dictatorship was established. Groner took a far dimmer view of the brown shirts and discounted them as anything but a danger. Groner didn't realize it immediately, but his protege turned against him then and there. Schleicher got his way with Hindenburg often enough that he was infuriated that someone else had turned the old man against his position. The army had already started to voice concerns about Bruning to Hindenburg. The destruction of the economy threatened their secret rearmament plans— and the restrictions on the brown shirts risked alienating potential auxiliaries. Schleicher, again, not the leader of the army, but the most persuasive and influential voice within it, convinced the officer corps to complain directly to Hindenburg about the SA ban, and Groner in particular. He convinced the head of the army to present a case to Hindenburg regarding the SPD street group, the Reich Banner, and convinced the president that there was actually street violence and danger on both sides. The presentation was just clippings from far-right articles, and Groner himself had dismissed the case before as being beyond flimsy, but Hindenburg was 84 and didn't bother paying attention to any of the details before ordering an investigation into the matter. The big move was on April 28th, when Schleicher had a secret meeting with Hitler. Now, this was what the Nazis had been waiting for. They knew Schleicher effectively controlled the army and had by far the most pull with Hindenburg. This was the guy they had been wanting to talk to all this time. Schleicher laid out the plan. Bruning would be removed and a new government appointed. The Nazis would hold their fire on the new government so it could get situated. Meanwhile, the Reichstag would be dissolved and summer elections would be held. That last part was the reward for Hitler's temporary cooperation, in addition to the promise that the SA ban would be lifted. A summer election was just what the Nazis desired— as they felt, correctly, that the wind was at their backs. When the summer election was finished, they would come to a mutual understanding based on the results. Both sides wanted to move fast, and Hitler accepted the offer. Over the course of April, there had been numerous local elections where the Nazis had performed strongly, netting anywhere from 25 to 50 percent of the vote. If those results were extrapolated to a nationwide election, it would still leave them short of an absolute majority, and ergo a claim to establish a government outright. An accommodation with Hindenburg was critical if they were to become more than a party of protest. Goebbels noted the Fuhrer was in such good spirits after the meeting that he took part in the drinks of champagne that were passed around, notable because Hitler rarely drank. Schleicher still thought the Nazis could be controlled, referring to them as little children who had to be led by the hand. Defense Minister Groner was left badly exposed. In late April, he shared a ride with Bruning on a visit to the Rhineland, and the two commiserated on the plots swirling around them. Groner recalled the summer of 1919 when Ebert had asked them if there was any possibility of military resistance to the Treaty of Versailles, and that if Hindenburg was willing to fight, then they'd fight. Groner said that Hindenburg had told him that there was no chance of further resistance, but left it to Groner to deliver the news and take the blame. He told Bruning that the field marshal's character had not improved much in the meantime, and how their efforts were likely doomed with such a man at the center of power. Once back in Berlin, he tried to deliver a speech on May 11th before the Reichstag, but the Nazis drowned out every word of it. Exhausted and ill Groner returned to his office afterwards and was met by Schleicher the general informed him that the officers of the Reichswehr had lost confidence in him as defense minister realizing his isolation Groner resigned that same day goebbels recorded in his diary we got the message from general schleicher the crisis continues according to plan groner's exit signaled that bruning was not far from being removed either The public reason was a land appropriation plan in East Prussia that Hindenburg was opposed to. A number of Junker estates were bankrupt, what with the Depression and all, and the plan would force them to be auctioned off. Hindenburg wanted to protect his buddies who complained loudly about it to him, and Schleicher convinced him now was the time to move. Bruning was summoned on May 30th and kept waiting an hour and a half outside Hindenburg's office, and once admitted was dismissed within five minutes, being told his time was over. Hindenburg told Bruning, My conscience compels me to break with you. He did offer him the position of foreign minister, likely so that Bruning could complete his work of jettisoning off the nation's foreign debts, but Bruning replied, I have a conscience too, and declined the offer. Goebbels recorded the next day, The bomb went off. The system is collapsing. Much more happily received by Hindenburg was Bruning's replacement, a nobleman and war veteran serving in the local parliament of the Prussian state, Franz von Papen. If there's anyone outside the Nazis you might have heard of in all this drama, it's probably him. He's the stooge that eventually handed the keys over to Hitler, but at that moment, he was just a very overwhelmed public servant. Like Bruning, he was a Catholic and had been a member of the Zentrum Party, but had abandoned that affiliation sometime prior, which made him perfect in Schleicher's eyes. The government he was envisioning would minimize the importance of political parties. He was also an old friend of Hindenburg's and in fact had made his final break with the Zentrum Party when he opted to publicly back the president instead of Wilhelm Marx back in 1925. So Hindenburg saw him as somebody he could count on. Papen had also been friends with Schleicher from back in their military academy days, so there was history there too. He had initially served in World War I as a military attache to the United States, but was expelled on espionage charges and moved to work on the general staff. The espionage charges amounted to indirect sabotage. When the U.S. was still neutral, he set up an operation in New York where he would try and set up workers with jobs in anything other than the armaments industry, as well as purchase goods used in producing war material and making sure it never went to the factory or crossed the Atlantic. One of his aides had some documents relating to the work intercepted by American intelligence, and he was forced to leave by the U.S. government. Astonishingly, he believed that his bags wouldn't be searched on the way out, and a whole list of agent names was confiscated. German spycraft folks, get ready for a lot more of that kind of stuff in Season 3. This global embarrassment was at least partially made good on via his general staff work in the Ottoman Empire where, by all accounts, he performed well. He had married the daughter of a wealthy industrialist and so moved in aristocratic, business, and military circles. He was very well-connected for an obscure politician. Finally, Poppin was intensely right-wing. His vision for the nation was to establish a state beyond parties, beyond politics, and totally unified. That is, unified under a restored aristocratic system of authoritarian rule. His selection was met with no small amount of incredulity, as an ambassador from France remarked that Papin enjoyed the peculiarity of being taken seriously by neither his friends nor his enemies. He was reputed to be superficial, blundering, untrue, ambitious, vain, crafty, and an intriguer. Schleicher, though, insisted the new chancellor only had to look the part, which Poppin did. He was every bit the suit-and-tie aristocrat. Anyway... He was brought before Hindenburg shortly after Bruning was dismissed and was received warmly by the president. When Poppen protested that he wasn't the most qualified man for the job, Hindenburg tut-tutted him and said, You have been a soldier and done your duty in the war. When the fatherland calls, Prussia knows only one response. Obedience. Poppen's cabinet would consist of a collection of aristocrats and businessmen unbeholden to political parties and was referred to as a cabinet of barons. His position as chancellor would rest totally on Hindenburg personally, and at least the neutrality of Hitler. Like Brüning, he was never delivered to power via an election. Days after the Papen government took office, Hindenburg dissolved the Reichstag, setting the date for new elections as July 31st. Additional local elections in June returned close to 50% turnout in favor of the Nazis. It seemed as though they might have a chance at seizing power. The wild card now, for everyone, including Hitler, was the S.A. The lifting of the ban of them was carried out on June 16th, and a lot of pent-up energy was ready to be let loose. Again, the S.A. was composed of desperate, angry people who were often at the end of their reason. They weren't interested in backroom agreements or political niceties. They wanted to get out onto the streets and fight their adopted enemies. They wanted to topple a world that they realized didn't care about them. They wanted action and violence, and even Hitler couldn't fully contain them. The SA and the KPD's own street fighting group, the Iron Front, uh, later renamed the Anti-Fascistische Aktion, or simply Antifa, were quickly at each other's throats. Before, their, their rivalry had been two marginalized groups almost ritualistically attacking each other to make more of a point than anything else. The stakes were now much higher, and the ranks of both were filled with far more people who again were eager to take the fight to their enemies. Over a hundred were confirmed as dead over the course of mid-June to mid-July, with hundreds more injured in the street violence. The most egregious case was an incident in the Hamburg suburb of Altona on July 17th, when 17 people died and 64 more were injured. Altona was a communist town, and the SA decided to have a march through it. The communists took exception to this, and some shooting started. Poppen took this as a big enough incident to seize one of the biggest prizes in Germany. So, I've been mentioning states within Germany and local elections. Keep in mind that Weimar Germany, like the modern state today, was a federal one. Local authorities had a lot of power, and their borders reflected many of the small principalities that had existed before German unification. So, places like Bavaria, Baden, Hanover, Saxony, and the like all had their own state governments and even the northern port towns like Hamburg and Bremen each had theirs. The thing is, though, Prussia was head and shoulders above all of them. The states weren't structured to reflect even distributions of the population. They were set up based on the borders of the petty German states at unification. And Prussia at that time was massive compared to the others. It alone comprised over half of Germany's territory and even more of the population, it was truly a state within a state. And it was notable for being a bastion of SPD power, which might sound odd since you understandably associate Prussia with the Junkers and militarism and all that. But keep in mind that Prussia included Berlin, the industrialized Rhineland, and Silesia, working-class population centers. Altona might have been a Hamburg suburb, but it fell on the Prussian side of the state lines. The disturbance there led to Papen on July 20th to invoke Hindenburg's emergency powers to appoint himself commissioner of Prussia, effectively dissolving the democratic local government in the state. The pretext given was that not only had the local government failed to combat the communists, they they were likely working directly with them. No mention was given in Papen's statement to the press about the brown shirt's own role in the violence. The army started to make an appearance and combat troops were deployed to the capital to maintain order. Prussia's police forces, which had been under SPD control for years, simply stood down. They were too exhausted by the perpetual crisis and too disillusioned with the republic to do anything. The SPD government of Prussia, exhausted itself by the years of crisis, packed it up. They mounted a legal challenge to Papen's seizure of power, But it would take months to adjudicate, and by the time the result was handed down, it no longer mattered. The Reich Banner Organization, the SPD's answer to the SA and Antifa, was not mobilized. Its members left waiting for a call to fight that never came. The non-entity chancellor had struck with surprising boldness and caught the center completely off guard. Weimar Germany had been built as a federal state, and within two months, the new chancellor had demonstrated that democracy at every level could be overthrown in an instant. For its part, the SPD had removed itself as a serious contender for power or as a resistance to the republic's dismantling. In this atmosphere came the elections just 10 days later. Goebbels complained that this was the party's fourth electoral campaign of the year, counting the presidential and local ones, and the SDAP was low on resources. Still, the Nazis again threw everything they had into the effort, employing the same overwhelming displays that had marked their campaigns since September 1930. On July 31st, the results came in. The Nazis had scored their biggest success yet, winning 37% of the vote and 230 Reichstag seats. The SPD had limited their losses, but slipped to the second largest party behind the Nazis at 133 seats. The KPD slightly increased their support, as did the Zentrum party. Everybody else got cleaned out. Where once Weimar Germany's Reichstag was composed of a kaleidoscope of political parties, it was now dominated by four. Maybe five if you wanted to be generous to the DNVP, which slipped further into irrelevancy. I'm not going to agonize over the results here, because they were ultimately indecisive. Papen and Schleicher had gambled that Nazi support would slip a bit and force Hitler to make a deal to their advantage. That didn't happen. Hitler had been hoping for close to an outright majority, and barring that, close enough that maybe cutting a deal with Hugenberg could have put him over 50% in the Reichstag. That didn't happen. Despite draining dry the party's coffers and blanketing the entire nation in swastikas, the Nazis did about as well as they've been doing so far in the year. Now came the question of what to do in order to move forward. All political avenues were frozen. The KPD, SPD, and Zentrum all refused to form coalitions. Papen didn't have a party supporting him, and the Nazis wanted more than the establishment was willing to give. Nothing had been solved, and the crisis just rolled on. It was dispiriting as all hell, and the nation was getting tired of it. They were sick to death of the economic insecurity, they were sick to death of the political gridlock, and they wanted it to be over. That's why next week we'll have yet another national election, but much more importantly, we'll be getting into the backroom conspiracies that drove just enough of the establishment into accepting Hitler as their leader. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.